2: All right. Well, we're happy to be joined today by Wall Street Journal senior sports reporter Rachel Bachman, who covers uh, the Olympics, college sports and the business and finance of women's sports. And uh, Rachel, it's good to have you here this week. Uh, Thank you for being flexible with your schedule. Uh, Obviously, with all the illness going around, you know, things are having to be shaken up all the time. But uh, thank you for joining us today. And it's uh, good to have you here because we have the uh, the college volleyball national uh, semifinals and national championship coming up this week. So you recently wrote an article about the uh, rise in volleyball it's a golden age of volleyball uh, per the headline and i was curious you know obviously i don't think there's been too many volleyball games on nielsen rated tv this year so the usual metrics i would look at are not necessarily indicative so i wanted to know because i i get the sense that there's some growth and and some interest uh what are are you seeing in volleyball that is compelling and pointing to an a, a, a golden age
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. What I've seen really is growth from the lowest levels to the highest levels. And that always always gets my attention because I'm just interested inherently in in bigger trends in sports. So things like high school volleyball participation among girls jumping 8% in 10 years, which is really notable because a few of those years were the pandemic when a lot of sports contracted in participation. There... um, growing at the club level, you know, volleyball clubs are exploding. And then as I noted in the story, there are a couple of years ago, there were no women's professional volleyball leagues, at least indoor volleyball. And in a couple of years, we could have as many as four of them. So that gives you an idea of what I call sort of the prospect or gold rush in trying to cash in on the popularity and and growth of volleyball.
2: And it's interesting you bring up the growth at the uh, school level, because a lot of sports are seeing decline. Uh, Gymnastics is a sport that is kind of popularly discussed as one that's kind of on the cusp. But I believe the participation rates in that have really fallen off dramatically since the USA Gymnastics scandal. So, And of course, football, we all know concussions and, and everything that's gone on there. So are there any other sports in the same class as volleyball, or is this just kind of the exception while everybody else is seeing decline
1: really among the the large number of participation sports so things like track and field and basketball softball soccer those the big sports for girls no sport has grown like volleyball has in the last 10 years and so it really is an outlier in that way and i do think coincidentally sort of or or concurrently it's the club game that's really driving it and it's harder to track those metrics because there's not one organization that tracks all of them, but every person I talked to said the club space is exploding. Um, one thing I think volleyball is benefiting for is, as I've written also recently, the decline in popularity of girls' high school basketball, which is a sort of a complex trend in and of itself. But obviously, in both cases, you have tall girls who are interested in doing this who tend to excel in both sports. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that Volleyball has risen at the same time that basketball has fallen off in recent years.
2: I, I know you'd written an article about this, and it kind of got a little bit of pushback on it as well. But why would you say basketball has kind of seen a bit of an erosion?
1: well, it's 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 very difficult to generalize because, as you know, this is a complicated country. One reason, for instance, is the closure of rural schools so there were many more schools that had basketball teams for instance than teams in some other girls sports for instance volleyball uh soccer even and so um in some cases you know schools would close and that team would just sort of vanish and they would you know those students would go to another school where it would be consolidated some younger kids don't like to run as much as, as basketball requires. Some girls don't like the contact of basketball, which again is sort of interesting because we see basketball somewhat declining as girls wrestling has been on the rise. So this is what makes it so difficult to generalize. I think in basketball's case, there's a whole bunch of um, factors that contribute, um, but there's also a factor of, I think, you know it used to be on top, it used to be number one, and anything that's you know that has the very highest rate could always um, fall off because it's the it, it's sort of the the prime candidate to see erosion from from competition.
0: Rachel John knows this. I am the father of twins, fourteen year old twins that are freshmen in high school, and it's interesting. They played recreational basketball. Uh, they do not play club like you're talking about, do not play volleyball. But along the same lines, they're tall. I'm I'm tall. You can't tell this because I'm sitting down, but I'm six foot three and a half, almost six foot four. So they're going to end up being tall. And so automatically everybody thinks, do you play basketball? Will you play volleyball? And for a lot of their uh, friends. It's interesting. They have numerous friends that maybe were playing the recreational basketball, but exactly like you're talking about, they kind of gravitated to volleyball. Again, this is in no way indicative of the whole country. I'm just giving you a small sample in the Tampa St. Pete Clearwater area. Not exactly maybe a, a volleyball hotbed to begin with, but there is obviously some interest at the club level in volleyball. Their friends. I hear about this, the tournaments that are going on, and you do have to choose because in Most cases, the sports are running simultaneously and you can't really be committed to both of them. So I think it's a it's a very valid point. I thought I would just add that to the mix in our own household that we we've seen example of that.
1: And, and increased sports specialization has affected all high school sports in particular, because even if the seasons don't run concurrently, there is pressure from club coaches in particular, sometimes even high school coaches, to concentrate on one sport. So that's where you see kids who might have been three-sport athletes 15 years ago dropping out of one or two and concentrating on one. And I
0: do a parental PSA on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. Dr. John Lewis, am I allowed to do that? Of course. If those coaches only want your son or daughter to play one sport, with all of this ask them first of all when you grew up did you only play one sport when you were in junior high and high school and see if they swallow the apple core as i like to say and the second thing is if you're telling me that my son or daughter is going to get a scholarship are you guaranteeing me a scholarship just from your sport that they shouldn't try anything else are you giving me that guarantee coach see again what the reaction is this is the tj public service announcement on how to help in the back and forth with only play my sport I'm just throwing that out there, Rachel, trying to make everybody smile and uh, and give them a heads up. There we go. And,
1: and probably most persuasive from college coaches I've spoken to, including Stanford's Tara Vanderveer, a very decorated coach, they prefer athletes who are multi-sport. So they think it makes them less inclined to burn out, less inclined to get injured. So that's the ultimate um, mm-hmm. rebuttal to parents who want their kids
0: to specialize. There we go on that, John. I didn't mean to sidetrack it. I just had I'm to not, throw sorry. that out there. Go ahead.
2: Well, I was curious, you know, uh, We talk about volleyball and basketball. Do you think volleyball at the college level, let's just look at NCAA, has a brighter future than basketball or, you know, in the long run? Because right now, basketball is still pretty well ahead. You're getting four or five million for the national championship, getting a nice healthy one million for the volleyball title, too. But it's still a big gap. That's a great question. It's hard
1: to say because we forget uh, all of these sports, especially women's sports, are really in their infancy in terms of monetizing them, and I could go on for uh, about that for a long time. But um, you're right; B- basketball is still quite a bit ahead, um, and that's for a number of reasons. I think people people love the NCAA tournament format. It's very understandable. It's um, it runs just about concurrently with the men's tournament. So it's really easy to follow. Of course, I think the ultimate advantage of college sports are these brands that are already well-known. If you say Nebraska, nobody has to explain what that means. You know, whereas fledgling professional leagues, they're all new. They don't necessarily have a connection to existing leagues. And so that's that's a huge um, mountain to climb. But that's also an advantage for volleyball. You know, I, think, I do think some of the success that volleyball is seeing is because of initiatives like I wrote about from the Big Ten Network, where... They realized about seven years ago that volleyball was already pretty popular looking at the ratings nationwide, but they thought they could could make it even more popular by strategically promoting it. And the way they did that was to actually schedule high profile volleyball matches to follow Big Ten football games. And then promote those volleyball matches during the football games. And this was hugely successful on the Big Ten network. And they've gotten some record ratings um, just this year with that strategy. And I think they'll continue to do it. So um, in that way, I mean, if they keep doing that, if other, you know, like the SEC network and other outlets um, go that route, I think it would really help boost volleyball since as we know football has this enormous following and platform already and it already has the built-in brand loyalty for the, the universities um but I, I think it's it's yet to be seen sort of how much volleyball can grow because it is really as something that people watch regularly outside of the olympics it really is still kind of at its infancy
2: so out of curiosity is there men's volleyball because i don't believe there is there in college, is, like college in college probably. there is yes
1: yeah yeah there's um but I think I forget I put it in the story it's either five or six times as many Division one women's teams as men's teams so they do exist but at a much smaller level uh-huh. um so when I when I wrote about volleyball that's one reason I focused on women and girls because that that's where the overwhelming number of teams
0: are And Rachel isn't it the case most of it is in the west a lot of it is in the west I'm not saying it's all in the west but in terms of male volleyball a lot of it is the western schools more so than let's say the southeast where I am it's not as much
1: You know I haven't I didn't look at that but um that's probably true I know historically the sort of the power center of men's volleyball is is California so um, there is actually a a nominally professional men's volleyball team, which I mentioned in the story as well. They don't actually pay salaries, so you could mm-hmm. debate whether that's professional, but that launched in 2019. Um, interestingly, they also want to launch a women's league. They're one of the four that want to launch. So um, even the nominally men's league wants to to launch a women's league too.
2: Yeah. The reason I ask is, you know, I put together my volleyball schedule on the site. I couldn't find any men's games anywhere. Uh yeah. And gymnastics, very similar. There's tons of women's gymnastics. When they say Friday night, what is it? Friday night flights? What is it that ESPN does? I think Friday so. Friday night heights. Friday night heights, right. When they do that, they're not airing. I don't think they've ever aired a men's meet on ESPN. So what do you think accounts for the fact that given the huge disparity we have in men's and women's sports generally, where men's are overrepresented, even beyond the the ratings gap? Like it's like 99 to one. But when it comes to volleyball and gymnastics, it is the exact opposite. You can't find men's volleyball or men's gymnastics on TV. What do you think accounts for that?
1: I My guess is that it is an evolution of how college athletic departments have chosen to implement Title IX. So you look at athletic departments and where does most of the money go? It goes to football, men's basketball. And that's also because those are the sports that tend to generate the most revenue. Um, So if you look at men's sports and sort of filling out the program, it doesn't really behoove athletic departments to have a lot of men's teams when they have to essentially play catch up on the women's side. So they're not completely lopsided. And the thing that sort of tips the balance um, at most places is football, because football rosters are 100 plus and there's no women's equivalent. And so there tend to be sometimes more women's teams than men's. Um, And so it's a little bit, it's a bit convoluted to explain, but generally speaking, you know, as you know, running athletic departments is expensive and running teams is expensive. And so uh, college athletic departments tend to pick the programs that can generate the most interest and revenue. And In terms of gymnastics, that tends to be on the women's side. Historically, that's what people want to want to watch. Historically, I think that's partly because of the Olympics. Women's Olympic gymnastics is extremely popular. And so I think that carries up and down the sport. Um, And same with volleyball. I mean, I think it's in other countries, men's volleyball is quite popular, probably more so than this country. But for whatever reason, college athletic departments have not jumped on the bandwagon to create teams. Um, And I think it's largely because they've chosen to sink their resources into, uh, you know, just a handful of the men's teams that generate the most revenue.
2: Interesting stuff. Uh, We could talk more about volleyball, of course, but I do want to get your thoughts on some other issues. Uh, In particular, uh, Brittany Greiner just returning to the U.S., uh, after 10 months in Russia uh, being incarcerated. You know, we see all the controversy, it, it gets ugly, right? People who are seemingly upset that Brittany Griner has been released. People who are saying, well, how could you let her out but not Paul Whelan? Then you have the people who are now trying to diminish Paul Whelan and say that, oh, well, he was discharged from the military. It, it, it all gets to, you know, people kind of feeding on each other here. And uh, I do wonder though, for Brittany, right? We have no idea what's going to come of her career. It seems almost impossible to go 10 months in a prison and then just go back to playing, but she did just the other day uh, do a workout. What do you think if she returns to basketball? Her impact will be on the WNBA, the popularity, the attention. Is this just one of those deals that, you know, it's just gonna be that controversy and that's it? Or will people really start following her career more closely?
1: Well, I think, first of all, we're not certain she will come back because as you um, hinted at, we don't really know what happened with her when she was in Russia. We don't know about her physical well-being, her emotional well-being, and sort of where she's at. Um, at the same time, you know, there are some, a, a colleague of mine, um, Robert O'Connell, wrote a story to published today about just sort of the the pros and cons of, you know, what she does next. And there are sports psychologists who say there's a real advantage to joining a team, rejoining a team um, that, you know, it is a feeling of togetherness and um, support that really might help her in her recovery. In terms of her reception, I think the league definitely and its fans absolutely wrapped their arms around her. And so I think she would, she would like, absolutely generate attention. Um, If she returns to the court, she does return to competitive play and, you know, tours the country playing at, at visiting, you know, away arenas, um, I think she'll absolutely attract attention. Whether that will translate into things like, you know, higher TV ratings, it's, it's hard to say, but um, it might have something to do with her play, you know, <laughs> above all else, America loves a winner. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to say now because there's so many unknowns about this whole situation.
2: Yeah, Do you think that this is the most compelling story the WNBA has ever had she comes back? I mean, is this something that would ultimately, we're talking about a league that's been around for nearly 30 years. I I can't think of anything that would be more dramatic than Brittany Griner coming back to play.
1: This story definitely has transcended the league in a way that perhaps no other story has. There were some early stories in the league with former Olympians, for instance, or ongoing Olympians competing and very famous, very accomplished women and so on. But her story really transcended basketball. And I think in that way, you're absolutely right. It would provide sort of a, I mean, a comeback story in a way that the league has never seen. And I think that could be tremendously valuable pr- provided, of course, she wants to do it. She right. wants to come back and it's, it's something that she does willingly.
0: Okay, we always have fun with these. I usually put them to John, but Rachel, since you're our guest, I'll put them to you. Let's just have fun. Who gets the first big interview with her? I have I have my thought on who it might be that sits down and gets to hear all about this. Rachel, you're our guest. Ladies first. Who Who do you think, if she does want to do it, and I think she will at some point, who who gets that? Who gets the get? What do you think? I,
1: I would guess, if I just had to guess, either Robin Roberts or Oprah.
0: There you go. I was along those lines. John Lewis, did you have a guess?
2: I was going to say Robin Roberts. Uh, I think Robin Roberts at this point, you know, I'm not saying she's bigger than Oprah, but Oprah's on own and she can get prime time on CBS Mm -hmm. if she wants. But Robin Roberts is on GMA every single day. I think it'll be Robin Roberts.
0: I thought the name Holly Rowe, too, might be in the comfort zone because she covered her in her college career, obviously, and now in the WNBA. But Robin Roberts is a former player, former Division I player in college basketball and Good Morning America, and and again, the tie-in with the WNBA, ESPN, and ABC. We'll we'll put a note out there that maybe it should be Rachel Bachman. Maybe Rachel should get to sit down with Brittany Griner. We're on your bandwagon right now for coming on the podcast. I just thought I would throw that out there while we're kissing up to the guest. John,
2: what else? Yeah, why not? That would be certainly interesting. I I do think that uh, it will be a big deal, probably too big for ESPN to get that interview, that ABC would get that. I I can't see ESPN getting it. You
0: see ABC primetime conversation written all over this with Robin Roberts because of the tie to the WNBA, John, you think? And I see Rachel nodding too.
2: I do. The only thing, and and, uh, Rachel kind of alluded to this, is if Brittany wants to do it. Brittany Griner is a very quiet person. That's kind of one of the ironies here. Her Twitter account has not been updated since, what, 2017? I'm honestly surprised they found any quotes from her about Black Lives Matter because she is not at all outspoken. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just her personality. She's a very kind of quiet personality. So it's entirely possible she chooses not to do an interview, not to write a book. She might never discuss this publicly, for all we know. Fair enough. Fair enough on that. All right. So uh, we obviously are in the middle of the World Cup. Uh, This has been an event that's been very much overshadowed by the death of Grant Wall. Uh, Now, Grant Wall's brother said today he no longer believes that foul play was involved. But, you know, obviously you cover the Olympics. Uh, The IOC and FIFA are two organizations that are certainly of questionable morality and ethics, right? And we have seen over time these events have been played in countries that are also kind of of questionable morality and ethics. Uh, What do you think the future holds for the IOC and FIFA in terms of where these events are being held? Because it feels like this has finally reached critical mass with Russia and Qatar hosting in back-to-back years in the World Cup and the on the men's side and China getting the Olympics this time around, the sports washing debate.
1: It's a great question. I don't think we know yet. The, the news that's coming out of the IOC in recent days, as you've probably seen, has been pretty alarming to some in Europe, and that is that most in the many in the Olympic movement are ready to welcome back Russian athletes, even if the war in Ukraine continues. And to me, that's sort of a signal that these very, very large sports bodies in some part are motivated through inclusivity. And in some ways, some people think, you know, that can take on sort of a negative tone in terms of including people who others think shouldn't be included. So the IOC for instance has so far said no to qatar for hosting the olympics my question is will that change now that qatar has all of these venues because one of the IOC's objection is you know objections is you know building sort of superfluous facilities well now qatar has them it has many facilities it could hold events um so you know, I, I think that that is something definitely to be watched. There are a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, that want to host events that others might question. The um, the other question that I, I think people are going to have to face is climate change, because of course, this World Cup was relocated, pushed back to December from its usual slot because of warm temperatures, You typically warm temperatures in that region. And so if other countries in that region want to host these events in the future, that is going to be another huge issue. Will other broadcasters, um, will other countries' broadcasters agree to that? And in the case of the Olympics, I think it's a much bigger issue because you have um, the U.S. where they're paying the most for rights globally. I don't think that's true for FIFA. I think FIFA, the, the rights fees are much more spread out around the world in the U.S. or in, 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 as far as the Olympics the US pays the single largest rights fee for to broadcast the games. And so of course it's going to have influence about when the games are broadcast. And mm-hmm. I, I think the US would strongly argue against Olympics, for instance, that competed with the NFL. I think that's the last thing on earth they would want. So so there are issues beyond the ethical issues and the, you know, the the host country. Um, sort of politics issues that I think will have to be looked at in, in terms of these, some some of these issues overlap, in other words.
2: Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where there's just a rotation? We see this with uh, the Final Four, Super Bowl, you know, a set number of, you know, Western countries, you know, the United States, the UK, France, Spain, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, we're talking every four years, so that's like a, a, a 20 year uh, cycle that you could have for one of these events. Do you think we'll ever get to that point?
1: I think we will. And I think we'll actually will get it with the Winter Olympics first, because, as I said, the climate change issue is really becoming coming to the forefront with snow sports. So, you know, the Olympics are getting more unpredictable in terms of where they can be held, the Winter Games in particular. So um, and I also think there will be pushback from other countries if there is if the rotation includes only, for instance, you know, North America and Europe or North and South America and Europe, because they will contend. And I think they'll have a point that, you know, those are not. Inclusive events. Those are not true global events if they don't include events in Africa and maybe in the Mideast and in, in Asia. So the, you know, both those entities, FIFA and the IOC, are going to have to balance all of these competing interests. And sometimes that means, you know, having games in a place like Beijing where it's cold enough, but you know, there are very few of these events typically there. Um, it's a very unnatural snow sports environment in many other ways, but it's cold enough. So you know, they they still are sort of a place that can hold these events in that respect.
0: Two interesting things. One, you alluded to this. The United States pays staggeringly more than any other country to televise the Olympics in particular. And that's one of the main reasons why the Olympics have continued to this point, because there was a lot of talk, even in recent years, that it was going to die out. But NBC re-upped and paid billions and billions and billions and pumped it in for at least two more Olympics to be coming in Paris in the united states so that's uh, that's obviously part of it the next thing um that i think is interesting is look what happened in athens greece look what happened in brazil where when you don't talk about the rotation and the countries that are that are more integrated with all of this um you have stadiums that are now decrepit economies that are crippled because they spent all this money to build stadiums and venues that have no use after the games are over with so john john to your point that Mm -hmm. makes the stronger argument For having a rotation, I believe, on more stable, economic, established countries that have hosted Olympics before and have all the venues as opposed to moving it around. That's just my thought to add to the discussion.
2: That's an excellent point, because, you know, I'm talking so much about authoritarian countries, you know, Russia, mm-hmm. dangerous countries. Some of it, too, is, you know, sometimes the Olympics can be dangerous to these uh, to these places, like uh, like in Brazil. Uh, there's a book by Dave Zirin, Brazil's Dance of the Devil, that covered a lot of this when Brazil had the World Cup and the Olympics back-to-back. And what happened? They ended up impeaching their president. They had all of this political <laughs> turmoil. And, you know, I don't think anyone was, was well-off for any of that happening. And the World Cup being in South Africa. Look, I mean, it is good to have these events in African countries. I mean, that is part of the world. But at the same time, there's so much exploitation, as I'm sure you, you, uh, Rachel, uh, know just from covering, the exploitation is is out of control.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really difficult balance. You know, you look at a country like Morocco, which has long wanted to host the World Cup, would, you know, I don't know whether hosting the World Cup would would improve that country's fortunes or make them more, you know, or, or decrease them, in other words, because, you know, I mean, it might plunge so much into building stadiums at FIFA's behest that it would be detrimental to the economy. On the flip side, I'm sure it would be a huge boon for tourism and, and you know, other businesses and so on.
2: Yeah, it's uh, that's always the key exchange in these deals is the impact Will it be positive or negative? You, there'll always be those economic impact studies to see that they're positive. And then you talk to the actual people who are there and they might have a different uh, story to tell. Uh, Rachel, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and uh, giving us such great insight on all these topics today. We really appreciate it. And uh, you, uh, you will continue, of course, to uh, break news on all of these topics for The Wall Street Journal, uh, as you have done so often. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Rachel, a treat. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, guys. Good luck. Take care.